We are so honored to have you with us this afternoon. We are deeply indebted to you. You are the significant people in terms of this ministry, not only because you have given to the ministry and many of you so faithfully and sacrificially and consistently, and that's why we continue to be on the air, but also because so many of you have made intercessory investments on behalf of the work and I am convinced more than the financial investment, that's not only why we're on the air, that's why we continue to have an impact. So we want you to know that um, we are so privileged to have you as a part of the team and particularly share in this afternoon. A few months ago, I thought I was backing in to my 60th birthday without anyone knowing about it. I mean, I actually escaped the birthday thinking that I had come through unscathed, only to return from Portland and have my dear Christian friend, Trevor Mabry, and his Christian wife, Lucy, now a student at the seminary, would you believe, both lie to me. <laughs> and tell me they are going with me to a restaurant and then we are going to the Dallas Symphony Orchestra. And lo and behold, I walked into a room and over 500 people knew about my birthday. <laughs> and so what I thought was secret is now pretty well spread abroad. In fact, wherever I go now, I am introduced as one of the senior citizens. <laughs> and before they thought I was a teenager. <laughs> I ran across something that might be of help to some of you. It's entitled, How to Know You're Growing Older. Some of you may need this information. Everything hurts, and what doesn't hurt doesn't work. <laughs> the gleam in your eyes is from the sun hitting your bifocals. You feel like the night before, and you haven't been anywhere. Your little black book contains only names ending in MD. <laughs> You get winded playing chess. Your children begin to look middle-aged. You finally reach the top of the ladder and find it leaning against the wrong wall. You join a health club and don't go. You begin to outlive enthusiasm. You decide to procrastinate, but then never get around to it. Your mind makes contracts your body can't meet. A dripping faucet causes an uncontrollable bladder urge. <laughs> you know all the answers, but nobody asks you the questions. <laughs> you look forward to a dull evening. You walk with your head held high, trying to get used to your bifocals. Your favorite part of the newspaper is 25 years ago today. You turn out the light for economic rather than romantic reasons. <laughs> You sit in a rocking chair and can't get it going. <laughs> your knees buckle and your belt won't. So now you can measure and determine how far along you are. This afternoon I want to speak to you on the subject, why be concerned about the family? One of the alarming trends transparent to the thinking Christian is the disappearance of the distinctively Christian home. 
I refer not merely to a home where Christ resides, but to a home where Christ rules, to a home where Christian truth filters down and permeates into every area of that home. And I believe we need to remind ourselves periodically that one of the inviolate historical facts is that no society, no culture has ever survived the fragmentation of its family life. And I believe the family today is unraveling like a cheap sweater. The collapse of every civilization has always been preceded by the unraveling of marriage and the family. I am convinced Satan has a strategy, and Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians that we are not ignorant of his schemes. And the longer I have thought about this, the more I am persuaded that the linchpin in the satanic strategy is to dislodge the Christian home. Some time ago, I received a letter from a student of mine now serving with distinction in Canada Many of you know Bill McRae because he served here in the community pastoring a church for a number of years and then went to London, Ontario to pastor the North Park Community Church and more recently he has become the president of Ontario Bible College and Theological Seminary. In the course of that letter he made this statement Dear Prof, recently we were informed by a family who has a direct connection with a Satanist group in the city of London that this group has been praying to Satan specifically for the destruction of the marriages and families of a number of the leading evangelical Christian workers in our community. Just three weeks ago it was announced at a Christian conference in the vacation land of Ontario that the Satanist groups in this province had a conference during which time the group in London was held up as a model to be followed by others because they had succeeded last year in eliminating five of the leading evangelical pastors from their ministry as a result of either a marriage breakdown or a major family problem, three of whom were graduates of our seminary. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not a fun and games proposition. He's playing for real, and the stakes are extremely high. The problems in family life today are epidemic, and interestingly enough, some of the highest levels of Christian leadership are infected with the same disease. As a matter of fact, I have had more young people in the last six months say to me, where do we go for models in the Christian community of good marriages, good families? You need to know that some of the most prominent Christian leaders are in the process of getting a divorce, are, in, are currently living in sin. And the result is the pedestals are empty. 
to many of our young people. And they're asking, you know, where are the behavioral models? Where are the people who flesh out in their marriages, in their families, what God has called us to? And I believe these facts are forcing a question. It's the question I want to answer today briefly. Why be concerned about the family? I think there are four reasons which conspire to build a convincing case that the family is not an option, it is an essential. And that we've got to restore to its biblical place the family as God designed it. The first reason I would suge suggest for your thinking is the family is important because of the paramount importance of the home in the scriptures. You see, the doctrine of the family in the scriptures is not peripheral, it's central, it's structural. The basic unit of society is not the state. It's not the school. In fact, it's not the church. The basic unit in God's society is the family. The home is the cornerstone of civilization. And when the home goes, the rest goes. It's just a question of time. The more I examine the evidence, the more I am convinced that the most neglected doctrine in the scripture is the doctrine of the family. For your information, there is no comprehensive biblical statement of the doctrine of the family in existence today. We have never done our homework in this area. This still remains one of the greatest needs in the evangelical community. It's never been produced. And our failure has a very high price tag connected with it. And our dilemma is seen in evangelicalism. Oh, I know that there are many seminars, and there are many tapes, and there are many films, and there are books galore. But the interesting thing when you examine these is that conspicuous by its absence is a strong biblical thrust to the teaching. There are many people in the Christian community who can quote Dr. So-and-so or Professor So-and-so, but there are very few people who can quote the scriptures and say, this is what God has said. There are four seminal passages of scripture that I would simply run by you to demonstrate to you how central this doctrine is in the scriptures. The first, of course, is Genesis 1 and 2, the seed plot of the Bible. And I don't need to spend a great deal of time to tell you that God roots the whole doctrine of marriage in the family in Genesis 1 and 2. This is the passage quoted by the Apostle Paul, quoted by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And verse 24 reminds us it's for this cause that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I've often tried to analyze what have I done over the years in marriage and family counseling. And you know what I've discovered? I've discovered that I can subsume all of my marriage and family counseling under one of those three statements in that verse. A failure to leave, a failure to cleave, or a failure to develop 
a one flesh relationship. Or take the passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6, what many biblical scholars regard as the very heart, not only of the book of Deuteronomy, but of the Old Testament law, where Moses says, preparing a whole new generation to go into the land, that I want these words that I'm commanding you this day to be upon your heart, and I want you to teach them diligently unto your children. When you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, when you are walking by the road, when you are lying down, and I want you to place them upon your hands and upon your head, symbolizing the word of God was to control everything you do, everything you think about, from the most intimate aspect of your bedroom to the most public aspect of your community life. And you come away from a passage like this and you say, you know, if we had never listened to anything else that God had said and put it into practice, we would never experience the tragedy that we are witnessing today. Or take the Psalm 127, which I believe, first of all, sets forth a basic philosophy concerning the family. And that is that you cannot build your home without the Lord, except the Lord build the house, he says, you're laboring in vain that build it. And it's vain for you to get up earlier or to stay up later because you'll only eat the bread of sorrows. God has no plan B. And then he goes on to say, but there's a perspective you need. And he uses three epithets to describe children. He describes them as heritage. He describes them as a reward. He describes them as arrows. And you think through the implications of that alone. And you'd never have the low level of thinking that obtains today concerning children, even in the evangelical community. Children are the heritage of the Lord. The word means assignment. So we think God gives us children because of what we can do to them. But the truth of the matter is God often gives us children because of what they do to us. Children are the reward. They're not an accident. They're not a tragedy. They're not a casualty. They're not something to be aborted and prostituted. They are a sign of God's favor upon a person's life. And they're arrows to be launched toward a predetermined target. And God gives us the privilege of being involved in the process. Or take the freighted passage in Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 1 and going through chapter 6 and verse 4, where you have a whole series of relationships, relationships that create responsibility, the relationship of the husband to his wife, the wife to her husband, the parents to their children, the children to their parents. And you get some of the most revolutionary truth that you have ever heard given by the one who created the family, the manufacturer's instructions, if you please, and therefore the one who obviously knows how they work. And of course, in our society, we have chosen to violate and ignore these basic specifications. But we cannot escape the consequences of bypassing the truth. 
Now, I would submit to you that if we had no more revelation than that, and I can assure you there is much more, we would have all of the reason in the world that would justify not only the art of family living, but a high priority on marriage and the family. But there's a second reason I'd like to suggest for you. And that is we ought to be concerned about the family, not only because of its importance in the scripture, but also because of the strategic role and relationship between the church and the home. Now, I believe there are only two divinely appointed agencies in the scripture. One of these is the home. And the other of these is the church. And the interesting thing is to see the relationship between these. See, the primary purpose of the home is to train people to function in the church. And the primary purpose of the church is to equip parents to function in the church. God never called a church to be a parent, though that's what most churches are trying to do. Now just stop to think for a moment, who has the child? The average, chi the average church has a child for approximately 1% of his time. The average home has him for approximately 83% of his time, the remaining 16% of his time belonging to the school. Now just think through the implications of that. You see what we are trying to do in our churches, particularly when we are bypassing the home, we are trying to do the impossible. And this is why any church that is not linked with the home is laboring against insuperable odds. It's a losing proposition. But when that home and that church are linked together in a cooperative, then you have an invincible combination that even, let's say, the so-called secular schools cannot dislodge. And I think what happens, though I think there is a great legitimacy to the Christian school movement, and a fantastic contribution it has made over the years is that often people who are not doing the job over here and a church not doing the job over here are trying to dump on these dear people an impossible task. Asking them, you lead my kid to Christ. You teach him the word of God when all the time God is saying, that's your primary responsibility. Now, if the church is doing its job and you've got them in a Christian school and you've got this triumvirate, then think of the advantage you've got to make an impact on that child's life. But if any of these is copping out in terms of the responsibility, then you are in serious trouble. And this is precisely what is happening today. I think many of our churches, for example, are doing more to break up our homes than they are to build them up. I was in a prominent church in the East some time ago and a pastor stuck, stuck a church bulletin beneath my nose and said, look at that, Hendricks, something going on every night of the week. I said, are you proud of that fact? It was obvious he was. I said, I wouldn't be. I would be ashamed of that. I said, let's suppose, and ladies and gentlemen, this is a tremendous supposition. I said, let's suppose that the people in your church were interested in cultivating their home life. On exactly what night of the week would you suggest they do that? To which this pastor responded with the agnostic, well, I, I don't know. 
And that pastor's ignorance forced a question. Is it possible that our churches are doing more to break up our homes than they are to build them up? See, we've got to ask some penetrating questions. What are we doing as a church to support this? Are we dislodging the members of that home every single night of the week? I remember suggesting to a student some time ago who was grappling with his issue in his church and asked me the question, what can I do? I said, why don't you mark some time in the church bulletin? Stay at home night. So he got brave and the deacons got wild and they voted that in Tuesday and Friday. Nothing could be scheduled in the church. Stay at home. So he thought, you know, as a good pastor, I better go around find out what's going on. So he said, I go around and find out what's going on. They're watching television. And he said to me, you know, perhaps I discovered not only do you need to tell people to stay at home, you got to tell them what to do when they stay at home. See, the average person left alone with his thoughts is tremendously lonely. And people don't have a clue as to what in the world they're going to do. I repeat, God never called the church to do the work of a parent. He called parents to do the work that only they can do. And a church to equip them to do that. That's a third reason I'd like to suggest for your thinking. And this is freighted with implications. We ought to be concerned about the family because of the climate of contemporary society. The church was designed, it's very clear from the New Testament, to impact society. But unfortunately, all too frequently, the society is impacting the church. You see, we've got a reproduction of what we had in the early church. And that is, instead of the church of Corinth, making an impact on the city of Corinth, the city of Corinth was making an impact on the church of Corinth. And this is exactly where we are today. The church does not exist in a vacuum. It exists in a society, a society that impinges upon that church and the people who live in it, and you cannot escape from it. There are four major characteristics of contemporary society I'd like to share with you briefly. And if we had more time, you could think through the implications of these for the home. The first major characteristic of our society is the characteristic of secularism. Every now and then somebody says to me, aren't you concerned that, uh, that uh, they're not persecuting you out on the campus with, let's say, some evangelistic program you've got? I say, no, I'm really not. What I'm concerned about is I don't think we're really that significant to be persecuted. You see, if you compare what happened in the first century in terms of what happened in the 20th century, you got an altogether different group of people staying up at night. In the first century, the pagans stayed up at night trying to figure out how in the world are we going to contain this sad thing. Today, it's the Christians who stay up at night figuring how in the world are we going to contain this kind of a secular society. A secular society is one in which there is only one dimension. And you knew it would happen when our theologian friends contributed to the process by pushing God over the cliff with a God is dead idea. I'm sure you read the book. God is dead, Nietzsche is dead, and I'm not feeling too well myself. <laughs> and this is the attitude on many a campus today. 
it's the fact that God is totally expendable. It isn't the fact that he is a live option among many options. It's the fact that he is never brought into the scene. And of course, if you watch television, it's perfectly obvious to you that, the, that we are being brainwashed to be increasingly more secular with every program. So we have an ad which in effect says you only go around once in life, so you better grab all the gusto you can get. And then Jesus Christ comes along and says, you really want to live a significant life? The guy says, man, sure, good, throw it away. Throw it away. Lord, don't you know you only go around once in life? You got to grab all the gusto you can get. And Jesus says, no, I don't think I remember that verse. You know, the fascinating thing is that the average person who wouldn't drink a drop of slits is shot through with that kind of a philosophy. A one-dimensional lifestyle. The second one, and you would expect it to grow out of it, if there is only one dimension to life, then it's obvious that you are going to live in a materialistic society. I was reading the other day, again, that great story of the parable of the soils and right out of that page I was grabbed by that interesting statement the deceitfulness of riches I suppose if we had more time today most of you could give me a running commentary on that because many of you have been deeply involved in a society and particularly in this community with very very well-to-do people many of whom are shot through with the sorrows, with the problems, with the casualties that are the product of a materialistic society. Not that there is anything wrong with things and blessings, and I hope you don't feel guilty because God has given you some money. I think that's a bad trip that many preachers are trying to put on well-to-do people. God never scores a person for having money. What he scores us for is being irresponsible with anything that he has given us by way of blessing and say, you never knew you were in debt. You never knew that I gave it to you because I wanted you to use it and make an impact with it. The result is that things become more important than people and we love things and we use people and we get a distorted value system. I guess this is one reason Gene and I have enjoyed going to some of the third world countries. Uh, every time I find somebody in our country who is a little ticked off at this society, I uh, would like to write one of my congressmen and suggest that we put through a new bill that the United States government will now pay the one-way ticket of any citizen to any country in the world with no privilege of return. And I think we'd solve three quarters of the griping that goes on in the scene. All you got to do is to go out. And I'm talking about the, some of the quote-unquote nice countries around the world. And the greatest trip overseas is the trip home. And the realization you are coming back to a truly free society. I met behind the Iron Curtain with a group of people I don't think I'll ever recover from the experience. It was the last night I was there. We were all there surreptitiously. It took us three hours to get the group together because they had all come from a different direction and in order to throw any police off. 
And we spent our time together and we were studying the word and they kept asking, give us some more, give us some more. And then the man who spoke the best English in the entire group said to me, would you do me a favor? I said, if I can. He said, would you tell the Christians in America to pray for us so that we will have courage to maintain our witness for Jesus Christ? And I just about went underneath the rug. You see, it's, it's in a society like that where you have no freedom, whatever, that you come to appreciate what it's like to meet in a delightful hotel like this on a Saturday afternoon and talk about anything that we want to talk about and not fear that some police are going to come plowing through that door and say, okay, you guys are next. Here's a third thing. And this is almost self-evident to any thinking living individual. That's the characteristic of sensualism. The fact that man, if there is only one dimension to life, and if everything in life revolves around things, then man eventually degenerates into a body, into a machine. And the only component in life is the physical. So we're living in a generation in which sex and love are coterminous in which people don't know the difference between lust and love. They don't know the difference between sewer gas and Chanel number no. five. <laughs> the result is a degrading of humanity and self-respect. I don't know if you've been following the series this week on ABC on child molestation, but I kid you not, I want to throw up almost at the end of every one of those sequences. I appreciate the candidness of the group presenting the program, but I think to myself, imagine living in a society where a dear little kid, two, three years of age, has to be exposed to this kind of material and scarred for the rest of his life, and there is not just such a total public outcry that we are committed as a society to eliminate this kind of perversion. Never thinking that it's this type of thing that's the byproduct of the philosophy that we bought into many years ago. The fourth characteristic of our society, in addition to secularism, materialism, sensualism, is humanism. And that is man as the measure of things. Most of us, as we grew up, may have learned the shorter catechism of the Westminster Confession, the chief end of man, is to glorify God. But the philosophy of humanism is the chief end of man is to glorify man. If you have never gotten a copy of the Humanist Manifesto, you ought to get one. 120 of the top leaders in this country met a few years ago. Among them were Andrei Sarkhanov, Soviet physicist, B.F. Skinner of Harvard, Sidney Hook, the Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at New York University, Rabbi Mordecai Kaplan, founder of the Jewish Reconstructionist Movement, Crick, the British co-discoverer of the structure of the DNA molecule, etc., etc. It reads like an intellectual who's who. What were their conclusions? No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. We believe that traditional, dogmatic, or authoritarian religions that place revelation, God, ritual, or creed above human needs and experience do a disservice to the human species. 
promises of immortal salvation or fear of eternal damnation are both illusory and harmful. We affirm that moral values derive their source from human experience. Finally, we strive for the good life here and now. Now ask yourself, what are we doing to prepare parents who in turn are going to prepare children to live in that kind of a society? And we can't hide our eyes or our head in the sand and say we're going back to another generation. We're living in this one. And if we cannot prepare our children to function in the realities of this kind of a society, we have lost our greatest opportunity. There's a fourth and a final reason, and if I ever get off on this, we'll be here all day, so pray for me. Fourth reason why we ought to be concerned about the family is because the home is the greatest means of perpetuating virile Christianity. You see, we're developing a vicious cycle. We've got sick and weak people who are coming together in marriages and producing sick and weak marriages. And sick and weak marriages in turn produce sick and weak families. The interesting thing is, there are more secularists that are sensitive to this than most evangelical Christians. Gene and I spent some time at Harvard University taking a course in the family and then later another follow-up course that was related to the aging process. And we were absolutely bowled over to find there was not one person who came to that platform who was not shook up over the fact that we are unaware of what we are producing in our society in the next generation. So that if we are alarmed over what we see today, just imagine what's, what it's going to be in the next generation. Given this vicious cycle, this reproductiveness of degeneracy that's going on. See, the greatest leadership is developed in a family. And the crisis of leadership in America today is essentially a crisis of character. And where is character developed? It's developed in your home and in my home. Fascinates me, having been this long involved in the process of teaching at the seminary, to see so many students with a high level of commitment. I must admit, that in my 33 years of teaching at Dallas Seminary, I have never seen a higher level of commitment than I see on the part of most of our students. It would absolutely blow your minds. But you know what the greatest problem is? The greatest problem is the bulk of these young people do not come from Christian homes. Therefore, their habit patterns are in many cases absolutely gross. Their value system is totally distorted. Their background is such that they spend the bulk of their time trying to overcome emotional handicaps. And if you were to sit in my office for one day, that's all, 
Just one set of interviews. That's what I'll give you. I will convert you for life to the importance of the family. The last interview I had yesterday before I left my office was one of the most delightful guys I think I have ever met. Committed wall to wall to Jesus Christ. He sat there weeping like a baby, saying to me, Prof, I don't know if I can get it together. This kid grew up in a home in which his father has got a PhD, his mother's got two master's degrees, he had a Playboy magazine and a penthouse magazine right on his coffee table since he can remember. And he said, I was reared with that type of thing. I was taken by my father to X-rated films. I went to college and I spent all of my time shacking up with the girls on campus. And then somebody came along and introduced me to Jesus Christ. And my life was revolutionized. And now I'm spending all of my time trying to reverse my field. I'm married to one girl and I love her and I'm committed to her but I've got all of this backwash constantly filling my mind and grossing me out. He said, when it comes to discipline, he said, Prof, I'd give my right arm if I had one quarter of the discipline that you got. And it's interesting to think back, you know, where do you get this kind of thing? And some of us didn't even come from a Christian home and I discovered my unsaved father did more to prepare me for the ministry than many Christian parents. He contributed nothing spiritually for a very obvious reason. He had nothing to contribute. But he taught me discipline. He taught me what it meant to keep your word. He taught me what it was to respect the opposite sex. He taught me what it was to work hard and enjoy it. He taught me so many things, Gene and I have often sat down and just thank God for what we picked up from our parents because we spend all of our time with kids trying to make up for what they should have gotten in a good home experience. When I was a boy in Philadelphia, I went to a church and I guess the thing I look forward to most, maybe like some of you, was the missionary talks. The reason I enjoyed the missionary talks was that they would always come with some, you know, relics, some dress, some drums they'd play for us, you know, and boy, I'd sit right on the front row, you know, and watch them occasionally. They'd speak the language and the rest of it. And I thought, wow, that's fascinating. And I don't remember a whole lot of what they said, but I remember one thing because it was repeated so frequently that it just sort of etched itself in my mind. If I heard it once, I heard it a hundred times in that little church in Philadelphia. The greatest impact on a pagan society is the impact of a Christian marriage and a Christian family. Now think that through. If it is true, and I am convinced it is, that every hour that goes by, you and I live in a more pagan society than we lived in the hour before. 
then it is also true that the most attractive thing about you is the quality of your marriage, the quality of your family. And by the way, if you've got a good marriage and a good family, you're fast becoming a phenomenon. You know that, don't you? You know, you're sort of an odd one. Do you ever get into a meeting anymore, you know, and they go around and find out, you know, how long you've been married type of thing? Of course, that's embarrassing. We don't do that too much. But every now and then somebody gets caught, you know, and you get up and say you've been married for 37, 37 years. You mean all tall, huh? How many women? You'd be amazed how many times I am asked, is Jean, Jean isn't your first wife, is she? I mean, obviously she's so young, she couldn't. <laughs> 37 years to the same woman and you're still enjoying it? You know, whoo! You know, what, what kind of a pervert are you? <laughs> See, my friends, because you and I are in the minority. Let's face it. And it's the common thing to trash up two, three, four marriages. And if you've got kids, I'm not talking about kids who haven't made mistakes. Who of us could qualify on that score, but I know many of your children, know some of them very, very well. And there's nothing more thrilling than to see what God has done in the life of kids, of men and women just like you. And I'd say, man, may their tribe increase. You know, would that we had 14,000 more just like them. And if you want to know, why we continue to be interested in the art of family living. These are the reasons. And what we're praying for God to do is to raise up a new crop. And I must tell you, I know we hear a lot of people dumping on the younger generation, but I, I'm not one of them. I must confess that I am most encouraged, more encouraged than I have ever been in my life by the younger couples, many of whom have come out of hell itself. But we're saying there's got to be a better way. And my wife and I are committed that we're going to put this marriage together by God's grace and for his glory. And we're going to have a family that honors him, even in the midst of this kind of a society. And I don't know about you, but I say, man, that encourages me no end. And if I got to go home to heaven, I'd like to go home knowing that at least we had a program on the air that was continuing to build into the life of kids like that. And John can tell you, and Bill can tell you, and Polly can tell you who reads all of the letters, and anyone else who's close in can tell you about some of the exciting letters that come in. Oh, we get some depressing ones. We get people, if you think that what I'm talking about is not true, you need to read the letters that come to the Art of Family Living. By the time you get through with that, you'll know it's really worse than I've been talking about. But you'll also see, in the midst of those, are the people writing in who say, hey, thanks for encouraging us. Thanks for making it possible. And to me, the most exciting thing about traveling around the country is having people who come up after meeting and say, hey, thanks very much for what you're doing for our family. Gene and I were just ministering in Philadelphia. It was an evangelistic banquet, and the person who was in charge of it said, you need to know 
that at least half of the people who are here tonight are here as a result of the ministry of the art of family living. And at the end of that time, Gene and I stood while the people filed by us, a steady stream of people, to tell us what the broadcast had meant to them, encouraged them, affirmed them in what they're doing, instructing them in some cases, stretching their thinking, but all the time giving them a new model, a biblical model for the importance of the family. So this is what we're committed to, and we hope you are excited as we are to be a part of the team. Just a quick brief update on the ministry. And I do mean brief because we're going to get out of here in 14 minutes. 5.30, we eat dinner at 6 o'clock upstairs in the Rangoon room. Delightful meal, just right above us. I say a couple of the highlights of the year. Many of you attended the tribute to Dr. Hendricks back in April on his 60th birthday. And I don't know about you, but it was a highlight of the year for me to see so many people come from across the country on a surprise basis and be there with over 500 people, local friends willing to come out in the pouring rain, if you remember that evening, to just have a very special time. And it was special not only because of the gifts of Dr. Hendricks, which have ministered to so many of us, but also because of the fact that I really think the Lord was honored. We saw that God has been faithful in having his hand upon Dr. and Mrs. Hendricks, and then some of the words at the end where he shared how he has seen his life like a, you know, a turtle on a fence post, that only God could have put him there. And we all concur with that. I think all of us could say the same things of ourselves. But I think so many of you that came and also supported that evening. Another highlight, I think, of the year has been the prayer warriors. Small core of committed women who will come in on Fridays at around 10 o'clock. They take over my office. That's no problem, except I've got to clean it on Thursdays. And have a little time of prayer. They actually sit there with letters from people who have broken hearts who want God to do something in their life. And these gals faithfully have, have stayed it in every Friday and take these to the Lord. Then they jot little notes to these people. Just say, hey, I, we've prayed for you. We love you. Anything we can do, let us know. Oftentimes, they'll take a little booklet that we have gotten through Multnomah or some other source that has to do with maybe depression or with divorce or some area of need. And that booklet will be included and sent along. What's really exciting is to see a few weeks later letters directed to Polly Crosland, Martha Binion, you name it, people writing back. Prisoners, guy on death row in, in Colorado, the only man on death row in Colorado, accused of killing his wife, which candidly he has not denied that he has done, but is asking us to pray that he might not be executed. And so it's a fascinating ministry. And candidly, this year has been fantastic, and I would credit the prayer warriors for that. A year of stabilization after probably growth that was much too quick for us to handle. And I feel the prayer warriors have become the backbone of the ministry. And we're grateful for them. Grateful, too, for Bill and Polly Crosland. I, uh, many, all of you almost, many of you have received this book. This is the brainchild of Bill and Polly. They were not only committed to it, but they designed it. Uh, they helped to pull it together. The only thing I did was stay up until 2 in the morning to ship them out with Bill. Now, if you know Bill, that's mid midday for Bill. No problem. That, yes. I said, Bill, I'll mail them tomorrow. No, they got to go down to the post office tonight. Tonight, 1.30. You should have seen the look on the guy's face when we walked in with these piles, these things, right? But Bill, Polly, I... I'll tell you what it did for me. Interesting. You know, I'm there every day, have read 
tens of thousands of letters. I mean, I read them all the time. You know what happens? You become numb to them. You become numb to the pain, which, of course, John and Trevor, the kind of thing you have to be careful of. You don't want to get numb to other people's hurts. I had gotten that way in, in many ways, more concerned about the business, until I started to sit down and just page through and read some of these comments. And it started to come back to, hey, forget the 750,000 or 1 million people. What about this little lady on Social Security who's going in for surgery? That's where it's at. And if you've read through these, you know what I mean. Some of you, by the way, I think have used this as a great tool for personal prayer as a couple. And that's fantastic. Several people have shared, they said, you know, we thought we had a lot of problems <laughs> until we read this. I mean, we feel like we're halfway to glory when you see what some of these people are going through. And I feel this has finally become an instrument we can communicate to you what God's doing. And then finally, we have also developed a curriculum a way to approach the problems families are confronting on a systematic basis. Like Mac, matter of fact, it was Mac's original idea to sit down and say, what are the areas of need? Polly Crosland has read thousands of letters herself and has cataloged the needs that are expressed. You begin to find out, hey, what is the prevailing need of an individual? Oftentimes, it's a broken heart over a loved one who doesn't know the Savior. Many problems with pending divorce, recovering from divorce, problems of depression. So we can begin to address the most prevailing needs of couples and families. And then finally, I would share in the way of our growth, when we started out in February 1980, we were on 17 stations back then, some very good stations. Estimated listening audience, maybe 40 to 50,000 people. Today, we're on over 180 different outlets. And by that, I mean we're on the Moody Satellite Network, which means Moody beams it up to a satellite, and there are satellators, they're called, throughout the country that pick it up and rebroadcast it in their area. We're on that. We're on cable. You might find yourself in a hotel somewhere and flip the cable TV, and if you go to the radio part of it, you begin to hear the art of family living. Cable networks all over the country. We're on what are called translators. These are affiliated with major stations, but what they do is they take a, a signal from a station. For example, in Sherman, they can grab the Dallas signal of KCBI and rebroadcast it. So it's like another, another station in and of itself. And then, of course, the normal stations as well, over 180 of those. Estimated listening audience, again, 750,000 to a million people. But the bottom line is that person that writes in and says, I'm hurting, how can you help? And we say, hey, number one, we'll pray. But also we'll do whatever we can whether it be a booklet, a letter, sometimes a phone call. What I'd like to do in six minutes is share for you three conversations that Bob Damrell, our new business manager, was able to get over the phone. Matter of fact, Bob, let me, why don't you stand? Bob joined us about a month ago. He's our business manager and his wife, Ula. Ula, welcome. Good to have you both. Bob sat down on the phone and rather randomly called a number of people who listened to the program. And of course, when they get that phone call, what are they thinking? Uh-oh, it's one of those electronic messages asking me for money. So Bob did a great job of trying to put him at ease and say, no, we just want to have a few people who have been very committed to this ministry hear from a listener how you feel about the art of family living. The first person you'll hear is a young gal who had a miscarriage. And she's been a faithful supporter of ours. She's one of our shareholders, a supporter in her community trying to keep the broadcast on it. In this case, it's KSGL in Wichita. Um, I know one specific area when last December when I had a miscarriage, I felt like I needed to share that with him since in being a partnership, that's what you do to share your struggle. And uh, got 
two letters, one from John Nieder, just to know that other Christians had gone through it. So that was an encouragement. Plus, um, the program comes here on at quarter till eight, and that's been good when I did work to have something before work to get my focus back on God. Well, I get a lot of um, feedback as far as letter writing and tapes that I can listen to during the day, which not all the programs do that. Well, I, I, uh, I appreciate uh, Dr. Hendricks's uh, insight into, uh, into the practical aspects of, of daily living and, and how, you know, walking with the Lord, uh, how, how it's applicable. Um, I, I, I appreciate his emphasis on the family and, and, uh, and giving encouragement and insight onto how to strengthen and to build uh, lasting relationships, you know, especially within the family and, and, and then, say, in the, in the body of Christ, too, is generally. And, uh, and I appreciate, too, uh, John Nieder and his, his teaching. Uh, I really, uh, I, I listen to him maybe, oh, not, not, not just real regularly. I'm, I'm a farmer, and so I'm out in the field a lot. Mm -hmm. But uh, once in a while in the cab of the tractor or in the barn or something, when I can catch him at noontime, I, I really enjoy listening to him and appreciate the printed material, too, that they send out in the cassette ministry. I've received a few cassettes from them, and, and uh, I've listened to them, and sometimes have used them as a springboard for a home Bible study that I'm involved in. But I, I certainly appreciate uh, your program and like uh, Chuck Swindoll's where uh, there isn't a continual emphasis on money. I think if the ministry is significant and, and God's blessing is there, that I don't think that there has to be such an emphasis on raising money. You know, that if, if, if God's going to honor and bless it, well, then, you know, the, the needs will be met and provided for. Mm -hmm. As opposed to some of these other characters that uh, that just continually uh, 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 see the the need to, to mention finances and so forth and so on. Uh, you getting ready to take me now? If that's okay with you. Do I do I get to hear what I say? Well, we're not going to be airing it. We will put it over the air. Which I'm just going to use it, uh, or maybe a portion of it, so our founders could get a better idea of how our listeners feel about the program. I see. So I'll be talking, and we'll never hear what I said. That's right. Oh, my grace. <laughs> That's scary? No, it's terrible that I, that I make such <laughs> profound statements that they won't be able to hear them. That's, uh, that's the only thing I suppose so. Well, it's, uh, it's very inspirational, and uh, one of the things that I look for in listening to uh, the radio programs, you know, from the religious standpoint, is, uh, one, are they uh, proclaiming the Word from the Word, and two, am I going to be able to learn more about the Word from having listened to the radio program? And, of course, this is always the case when, uh, 
we listen to all the family listen. And the other thing is also, does it is it helpful to me in trying to live a Christian life? And can I also share the thoughts and ideas and principles with someone else who may be traveling along this uh, journey? I'm sure there are probably many, I mean, you, you are trying to accomplish several things, but I would certainly imagine the first one is to proclaiming the gospel uh, that men might come to be saved, and secondly, once we become saved, that we might be encouraged to live the life according to the word. And then, um, thirdly, I think that uh, uh, Art of Family Living has a particular bent towards a family uh, relationships and, and how to improve those family living, you know, relationships among, you know, parents and children and, and others. So between the proclaiming of the word and you know, the utilization of the word amongst the family and the relationships therein. I think this is, um, this is what I sort of get from, you know, having listened to all the family living. You, you mean I'm doing all this talking, I'm still not going to get, can I buy the tape? <laughs> I, I, maybe I can have it sent to you somehow, and maybe I could do that. Maybe if I... <laughs> If I send you a donation, you'll send me. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you just said. <laughs> we trust that that as they look back at what they have done, that they will not rest on their laws, but they will use this opportunity one to praise the Lord for having made the journey thus far, and two that they will be encouraged that they might go on to serve the Lord and to do what the Lord would have them to do that they may uh, continue this fine programming not for six more years but for 60 times 60 more years. Are you really calling for more of family living? Yes, I am. That's right. This is not one of those television shows and all like that, right? <laughs> no, it's not. We are from Dallas, Art of Family Living. Okay. Well, listen, you have a good night now. Thank you, and you too, Dan. Take care. Right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Lord bless you. You too. Right. Bye-bye. Six o'clock upstairs in the Rangoon room. Why don't I close the word of prayer, and we'll meet you upstairs after you freshen up and maybe another cup of coffee, okay? Father, thank you that you impressed upon all of us the importance of the family. We just thank you for our family. And my prayer is that as we seek to minister to other families, we might guard our own. And I pray, Lord, that we might have a greater commitment as a result of today to our families as well as to helping others make it. Lord, we just thank you for the privilege of having your word, having the freedom to hear it, having the freedom to live it. And I just pray that as our fellowship grows and we have more years under your grace, that we might draw closer to one another as we seek to draw closer to you. Father, help us to realize that we too, in, in a way, are a family as we seek to minister together. Thank you for everyone here, for the time we've had the ministry of the word from Dr. Hendricks. And I pray it will bring forth great fruit in the days ahead. I commit this day to the Father.